Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Martin Bauma with Keller Williams Realty in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Last year, he closed two better than 18 transactions with a total sales volume of $67 million. His average sales price was $309,000, of which 46% were buyers and 54% were sellers. He operates a team with 11 members, two buyer agents, one showing specialist, one listing specialist, one lead coordinator, one closing manager, one listing manager, one part-time marketing manager, one part-time courier, one receptionist, and one team leader. Martin Bauma is the team leader of the Bauma Group. He has been an agent for 28 years. Martin sold over 3,000 homes in his career. In this call, Martin talks about how he fell into real estate by accident. After his first year, his broker told him he did not have what it takes to succeed. How he went from failure to producer in 120 days and the woman that helped him. What he does to generate 68% of his business by repeating referrals from his past clients and sphere of influence, including his marketing plan. How he dominates his neighborhood filled with million-dollar houses. Spoiling his raving fans with a top 150 VIP program. Geographic farming for high-end listings, including what to send and how often. Hiring a COO to run his day-to-day operations. Lead coordinator who calls all the internet leads and sets appointments. How to keep your staff motivated and accountable. Plus, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Martin. Thank you. Martin, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I came to Ann Arbor to go to the University of Michigan, and I got an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. I intended to go to medical school, and I was, uh, I was raised in Canada. So I was considered a foreigner and did not get in the first time around. So I decided to, uh, I wasn't going to play the game like a lot of my friends did, where you keep taking classes and keep reapplying. So I went and worked in the hospital as respiratory therapy for a number of years and um, sort of realized that wasn't going anywhere. And I got my real estate license sort of serendipitously. I wanted to just learn about real estate a little bit. And the uh, broker that sponsored me talked me into becoming a salesperson. That's sort of how I got started into the real estate business. Wow, so it was just kind of a fluke. It was a fluke. I had no intention of getting into sales. <laughs> and how long ago was that? How long have you been in the business now? That was 1985. Wow, so about 28 years? Yeah, yeah. 
When you first got in the business that first year, did you have a fast start or a slow start? No, I had a very slow start. Matter of fact, I started in a little Century 21 office, and it was, <laughs> it was really it was a bunch of old men who would go and have double martinis at lunch and then come back and smoke cigarettes and talk with foul language on the phone for the rest of the afternoon. Uh, it was a, <laughs> quite an interesting beginning. I realized pretty quickly I didn't want to stay there. So I went out and um, went to a bunch of different companies to interview, and I took all these tests at different companies, and of the three companies I interviewed, none of them said I had what it took to be successful in real estate. So uh, luckily, there was one woman who worked at the Michigan Group. I, I did apply there. They did hire me. And there was an agent there who sort of took me underneath her wings and sort of started mentoring me. So, no, I had a very, very slow start. Once I was at the Michigan Group, what happened, I uh, was there for about a year. And uh, my manager actually, on a yellow piece of paper, wrote a note saying, Martin, you don't have what it takes to make it in real estate and stuck it in my box and basically said in order to stay at that office, I had to do one transaction a month. So I was devastated because I'd quit my job at the hospital. And there was a woman there who saw me and she says, Martin, she says, what's the matter? I says, well, I, I'm sort of being asked, I think, to leave this office. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, do you want to make it in real estate? I go, absolutely. She says, will you do whatever it takes? And I go, yeah. So she said, follow me, and we went to the back of the office, and the two of us would sit on the phone from 9 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night, and that is all I did. Sat on the phone, and the only reason, the only time I would leave if it was to go out on an appointment, that was like in March. That July, I had like, I think it was six or seven closings, and that was sort of how things started for me. Have you continued that? Do you still get on the phone? I get on the phone now, but my calls are very different. You know, I'm not cold calling. I'm, I have such a huge sphere of influence and such a huge database that most of what I'm doing, I, I have a, you know, I, my whole thing is success is I do a whole bunch of things every day. So I, every one of my goals is every day I make 10 phone calls. And most of those phone calls are follow-up calls, that type of stuff. So I'm lucky, you know, I'm at a, I've reached a point in my life where I don't have to be doing cold calling or any of that kind of stuff. So I make my 10 phone calls. Sometimes I may be up at to 15 or 20 if I'm slow, but I still am very religious about making those phone calls every day. Do you make them at a certain time every day? I used to do it in the morning. I, I just found that my energy is the highest. And if I walk into the office and I, you know, I spend a few minutes getting ready and then I just get right on the phone and make those calls, they're done, they're behind me. They give me energy for the rest of the day as opposed to having it hang over you all day long. I find that I do it first thing in the morning. In that first year, you said it was really slow. How many homes did you sell in your first year? Oh, well, I'm thinking, I would say probably maybe two or three. I mean, it was just very minimal. I was still working at the hospital, and I was basically selling a few homes here and there to friends. When the mentor took you on and you started making the phone calls, how many homes did you sell in that year? You know, I honestly, and I've got all my stats, every single one of them going back to 2000. And I, I don't honestly know the number off the top of my head, but what happened, I do remember very much that that July it was like six or seven closings is what I had. And then I just started becoming consistent. So the first time I actually had money <laughs> to where I, you know, I could like, oh, wow, I can survive on this for a little bit. And I wasn't working out of panic mode. And I was also realizing that, wow, if I do this, it's going to work. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, 198 houses. 
you remember the sales volume? The sales volume for last year was 51448000 Do you know how many homes you sold in your career? You know, I was, I was trying to tally it up. It's close to 3000 Again, like I guess I didn't track my numbers really well for that first six, seven years. But I think if I look at for when I started tracking, I'm at 2,800 homes. And I know that there's an, about 10 years I didn't track in the very beginning career. So I figured at least a couple hundred in there. So we're probably right around 3,000. Let's do this. Let's talk about your market. We're talking to people all over the nation and, in fact, the world. Could you help us by telling us where is Ann Arbor, Michigan? Ann Arbor, Michigan is located about 45 minutes from downtown Detroit. We are we're separate. We're in a different county. We're a whole different community. We're probably about you know 10 miles beyond the Detroit suburbs, 10, 15 miles beyond the Detroit suburbs, uh, west of Detroit. It's the home of the University of Michigan. So it's a huge, you know, lots of research going on. A lot of the auto um, companies have their research facilities here in the city. We've got Google. We've got Barracuda. So it's a little high-tech community. So between the university and all these high-tech research facilities, it's a pretty affluent community. Do you know what the population is there? population of the city is like 114,500. That's including the university body. And there's 43,000 students at the university. But keep in mind that probably a third of those are residents. You know, they actually, like, especially if they're grad pro, you know, uh, students or whatever, they, they're actually residents living in the city. The county, and there's a lot of the city that's outside of the city limits, the county population is 350,000. And you're working the whole county? I work, yeah, I work basically, I work the whole county, but I would say 90% of my business is Ann Arbor, Dexter, and Saline. And Dexter and Saline are two little bedroom communities of Ann Arbor. You know, I didn't ask you earlier, but you said you're originally from Canada. Why did you come to the U.S.? My family moved. I moved my senior year of high school. My senior year of high school, we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan with my family. I did my senior year of high school there, and then I went on to college. Well, you said that they considered you a foreigner, but you'd actually been in the U.S. for a year before you went to school. Right. But I was still, I was still a Canadian citizen. So I didn't become an American citizen until it was like in the, in the 80s. Could you please describe your current real estate market? We're at a point now where some portions of the city, we are back to where prices were in 2006, which was sort of the peak year. And Auburn, like I said, is a pretty affluent community. The average sale price in the city is right around 300 In the larger community, it's about 220 Low inventory right now. There are some areas where we literally, you know, have a one or two month supply. If you even want to call it that, something hits the market and it sells immediately. Um, we've noticed that this, like March, April, May, we had an absolutely crazy market where you'd have you'd have like 30 showings in two days, and you end up with six offers all over list price, and we'd have this crazy overbidding. That has stopped. We're not seeing that anymore. We're still seeing a low inventory market, and we're still seeing buyers but we're not seeing people going crazy. You know, that has that sort of slowed down a little bit. We're sort of trying to analyze what's going on right now because it was very slow. We're trying to figure out, was that just a little fluke? You know, or is that going to continue? It, it's hard to say. The hardest part really is listings, trying to get listings, because even people who want to sell their houses have nowhere to go. You know, so it's this whole thing that everything's getting tied up. So right now we're sitting, the market's actually a little bit on the slow side right now, but inventory is low and prices, like I said, are in many areas are getting back to where they were at the peak.
Do you have a niche or specialization in your market? It's interesting. I started years ago when I was trying to get really get going. I created a niche with the condo niche. I developed a website called condohotline.com. And what that did, it created the perception that I was the expert on condominiums. And you could go to this website and it had information about every single complex. It had photos, it had floor plans, it had bylaws. And at one point, 40% of my business was condominiums. When the market crashed, the condo market got hit really bad to where you could barely give them away. And the price point got so low, I didn't want to work that market anymore. So I sort of let it slide. And now that the condo market is doing very strong and the prices have come up considerably, we're jumping back into that. So that was one niche that I always had. And what I've done now, I've worked, I'm working three niches. I'm working the condominiums. I'm working the high end, which I'm really starting to, to get in, you know, over 800. Now I'm, age, I'm the second agent in town, so I've really started to capture that high end. And then I'm doing what I call like middle, the, you know, the, the 300, 250, well, 300 to 500 those are the ring subs around the city where you have all, you know, a lot of the typical family subdivisions. So I've got three distinct, and I have the, the downtown condo market is also a very distinct little market that I'm working at and uh, farming. How did you move into this high-end, over $800,000 price range? Well, <laughs> for starters, I moved into a neighborhood that is very high-end. It's interesting how that worked. I, you know, when I moved to where I'm at, it was like, gosh, do I really want to buy a house in this price point? I wanted, you know, and it was basically a million-dollar house. But I made a business decision. Part of it was, this is how I'm going to get into it. And lo and behold, it's more than paid for itself. My own neighborhood had completely dominated. And so once you become associated with having sold a couple of high-end houses, it starts opening the door for you. I also make a real point of uh, previewing the high-end market and just focusing on that price point. I'm also, myself now, I'm just trying to hang out with a crowd that lives in higher price point. You know, you, you just start moving up the ladder. And I think the longer you're in the business, it's also easier because your clients that you started with 25 years ago are moving up into higher price points. So all of that put together, now I've done a real calculated move, you know, in the last year that I'm going to dominate that market. So I'm farming some of them very specifically. I'm bringing on people that can connect me to that price point. And I'm doing a phenomenal job at servicing the clients that I do have. Let's talk about the ways that you're generating leads in business. What are the top ways that you generate leads for your business? It's interesting. Uh, you know, every year it's so funny because we spend money on Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com and Craigslist and all this kind of stuff. And it's amazing how often we have a perception of what works. And then when you really sit down and look at it, and I analyze, like on the listing side, 72.3% of my GCI on the listing side comes from people who know me, past clients, referrals from past clients, realtor referrals, vendor referrals, C of I, 72.3%. And it's interesting, no matter what I do, that number has been very consistent for the last couple of years. It's been 70 to 73% of my business, seller business, comes from that group. On the seller side, 7.8% comes from the internet, and that number is growing. It's growing considerably. You know, it's interesting now, a lot of times when we find out, and sometimes things cross, you know, like people will, uh, even people that refer to us, they refer to us, but they've also Googled us, right? Because most people refer to two or three agents, and then they Google them. And that's why it's so important to have good presence on Google. 
but we're getting more and more people say, Mom, we, you know, we, we referred to three people and we Googled you and we're really impressed. You know what I mean? The, 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 the two go hand in hand sort of. On the buyer side, 55% of all of our buyer leads come from people who know us. Again, that's C of I, past clients, referrals from past clients, realtors and vendors. 40% come from the Internet. And uh, we've done very well with Zillow and Trulia, but it's interesting. The majority of the leads, the Internet leads, come from my own personal site, Balma.com. They don't come from Zillow, Trulia, and all those other sites. We get lots of clicks from them, but as far as running it down to the bottom line, the large majority of those Internet deals are coming from Balma.com. Are you driving traffic to that site? Yeah. I have a marketing person who works about 20 hours a week, and what she does, she does, I don't even know half of what she does, but she, she, she blogs. If you notice on our site, we've got all, every single neighborhood in our community has a web page, and we have photos of the development. We constantly are updating as to the latest stats on the subdivision. And so we're constantly adding content, 20 hours a week worth. She does Facebook, you know, we have a really successful business Facebook uh, page. We have, she does Pinterest, she does, Oh gosh, I don't even know what she does. But what's the most important thing is she's constantly adding data and information to our sites, and doing and she's doing all the social sites, and a lot of that's what drives traffic to our to our website. Like if you type in any subdivision in t- or any community in town, let's say Walnut Ridge subdivision, we are probably like number one, two, and three on Google. You type in Ann Arbor Realtor, we're the only individual realtor on page one. You type in Ann Arbor Real Estate, I think we're the only one individual realtor on page one. So we've just really learned to dominate all of that. Wow. So you're getting great SEO, uh, search engine optimization. You have a lot of keywords out there that people are typing in. It sounds like you've broken it out so that you have specific stats that you're updating on each subdivision almost on a daily basis. Yeah. She's in there, like every day she's updating something. And she blogs and, you know, does posts on Facebook. And and it's all sort of interconnected and drives traffic back to the site. I'll tell you another thing, too, that we've done. It's really powerful is I constantly share information with the business editor at our newspaper. Twice this year now, I've been quoted quite brazenly in the newspaper where they, you know, they talked about our business and everything. And that's incredibly powerful. When you say that, what happens? Do you end up getting more leads coming in or the people you're already working with referred to it? What exactly is the bump that you're seeing that occurs? Every time we're in the newspaper, we probably get four to five listing calls. Wow. Those are just things we can direct immediately, right? You don't know how many people, you know, they read it and then they see your sign and then they see, you know what I'm saying? Sure. It's like, okay, you know what? It's doing a whole bunch of things consistently. That's the whole name of the game. Let's start breaking down some of this into parts. You mentioned that your past clients, your sphere of influence, these referrals, this is a big part of your business. Let's try to break that down a little bit. I assume you have a database of these folks. How big is your database? The total database is 12,934 people. Who is in that 12,900? I assume that's more than your past clients' sphere of influence. Yeah. We have 14, roughly 1,400 people on our mailing list. Those are past clients and people that you know, we've dealt with. The additional, basically, 11,000 people in that database are anyone I've talked to at any what level 
the areas that we farm, every single address is in our database. Okay, We farm probably, I want to say, about 3,000 homes. Anyone that we communicate with on any what level, even if it's like an, you know, someone expired from five years ago, is still in our database. Because what I found, a lot of times it will happen is years later, they might get listed again or whatever, and you can't track their phone number, but guess what? We still have their phone number from before. So I keep them in. The only time I'll delete someone from the database is if they have sold and left the area, and I've never dealt with them. You know what I mean? Then I'll take them out. So you mentioned that you, you think that your past clients and sphere of influence, your centers of influence, that part of the database is somewhere around 1,400 people. Correct. Do you know what the breakout is between the past clients and the sphere of influence? Uh, which, how many are in each group? See, I always divide it between seller and buyer because to me they're totally different, right? A lot of people sort of mix the two and I think you're missing the point. If I look on the seller side, 11.9% of the closed business was my circle of influence. 41.9, basically 42% past client. 6% was referrals from past clients. 5.7% was referrals from realtors. And 6.5% was C of I from the team. That's on the seller side. On the buyer side, 2% was circle of influence Martin. 13.6% was past client. 25.3% was referrals from past clients. 3.5% referrals from realtors. 4.4% referrals from basically vendors. And then C of I from the team was 6.5%. So your past clients and your referrals from past clients really is a big chunk of your business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It sounds like you, you, have, you have a large database. Where are you keeping this database? Use a certain type of software program? We use Top Producer, and we also started using RealPro probably about three, four months ago. And what we do, all of our leads go into RealPro, and our lead coordinator is basically nurturing those. Once they become someone we're communicating with, they go into Top Producer. Let's talk about what you're doing to stay in front of your centers of influence. Are you emailing them, mailing them, calling them? What exactly are you doing, and how often? First of all, every uh, January, they're going to get a four-page, full-color brochure, so it's like a little magazine actually, just a market update in the marketplace. So they all get that. They all get a handwritten card on the birthday with a certificate to an ice cream place here in town on the birthdays. On the anniversary dates, they get a handwritten card congratulating them on the anniversary of the purchase of their home. They all are put on a uh, email. They get an electronic newsletter. They get that every single month. We put a lot of them onto our uh, market snapshot to top producer. We've been a little bit sloppy about putting stuff in the mail every month to them, but we're gonna we're slowly starting to pick that up again. Maybe not every month, but at least quarterly. As far as phone calls, like I said, those are some of the calls that I'll make, you know, on on a regular basis. If I can't, if I don't have ten people, I'll start calling past clients and customers and just sort of see how they're doing. A lot of times, what I'll do because I, you know, it's hard. It's interesting. Sometimes the hardest phone calls to make are to your past clients, especially even if you haven't talked to them for years. And that was a big stumbling block for me. And so what I finally realized is if I have something of interest to tell them, it gives me a reason to call. So what I'll do every once in a while, I'll say, oh, wow, a house just came out. You know, so-and-so just bought a house. Let me just call them and let them know this house came out. 
And I'll just say, hey, Mr. Smith, you know, I just want to know that it's been a while since we talked. How are things going? And blah blah blah. And I'll just say, I just let you know that so and so's house just got listed for five hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Well, and just start a conversation. For me, it's made it easy for me to call past clients to to call them with a reason. You look for a home that's sold in their area or somebody that they know. Yeah, or if it got listed. You know, so what I'll do, it's very simple. You go to the assessor. If the house got listed, you can go to the assessor's office, find out who it is, and simply say, hey, you know, Bob, I just want you to know the Smith house down the street just got listed for 540. You know, just thought I'd let you know what's going on in your neighborhood and just, you know, and then just let the discussion flow from there. It gives you a reason to call. Do you think that you're contacting your past client database, say, once a year by phone? Not all of them. I can be very honest. <laughs> uh, that is... One of the, you know, part of what it is, especially this last year or two, I've been so incredibly busy that some of those things fell by the wayside. Now that I've brought on a business, you know, basically a CEO to run my team, um, I'm going to have, I can, I'll be able to focus 100% on that kind of activity. Yeah, we're going to talk about your team structure a little bit later, but you just mentioned you brought on a, a COO to run the team. Tell me why you did that and, and how that's working out. Well, she's been on board for a week, and I can tell you she has exceeded every expectation I had 10 times over. What happens is you get to a certain level, especially when you start getting to around 10 team, but I was finding that I'm spending way, I would say half of my time just running the thing, you know, like doing payroll, uh, training, doing this, hiring, firing, putting out fires, just, you know, trying to create systems and making sure people are accountable, all that kind of stuff. And... I thought, you know what I enjoy doing more than anything is I love listings, and that is where the money is. You know, you bring in the listings, everything else falls in place. So I thought, I need to bring someone on board because my goal is to double my business in three years. And I need someone, you know, because even I'll bring on talent, new people. I have every intention of meeting with them every single day and, you know, we'll train them. And, but I find that when you're busy, you just don't have time to do it. And we can only wear so many hats. So I brought this person on board, and she is just grabbing everything, you know, by the horns and is going to make sure that everything in her office is running smoothly. She's going to implement training. We've got systems, but what happens, you get real busy, and people start falling off the bandwagon as far as following the systems and, you know, in order to get things done. She's going to do the hiring, the firing, holding accountable, analyzing, you know, all of that kind of stuff for me. What is her background? Her background is... um, she was comes from New York City, and she was in the fashion industry. Has nothing to do with real estate, but what she would do if there was a clothing line that was failing, they'd bring her in and she'd turn it around. So she's got a very, uh, very successful business background. She's a turnaround artist. Yeah. How did you find her? She lives in my neighborhood. You know, I, it's interesting because I, I put the word out to all the different people I knew, and one night I was walking the dog and. Her husband came up to hey Martin. He says, "Remember we had that discussion?" She goes, "I got a crazy idea." I said, "What's that?" She says, "What about my wife?" I thought, "Agnes." I thought, "Oh my goodness!" I thought, "Wow," because <laughs> Agnes is she's she's like a velvet hammer. She's one of these people who has a phenomenal personality. People immediately like her, but she has that velvet hammer. You know what I mean? It's like she can come down if things don't get done, and she. Well, since she's been in Ann Arbor, she's been raising kids, and she's been working with all the charities. So she's basically involved with all the high-end nonprofits and is very well connected in town and knows how to run organizations. And so I thought, wow, let me think about that. 
So I moved forward and interviewed her a hundred thousand times and tested her in every single what way and finally made the decision about probably two weeks ago to bring her on board. Well, to get back to your uh, past client's center of influence, I understand you have a top 150 uh, VIP program. What's that all about? It's interesting. Gary Keller talked about, hey, you guys, if you took, you know, we all have these raving fans, right? And a lot of times what we do, we, we spread our resources really thin. And even though I might have 1,400 people on that, you know, past clients, I know, you know, as well as I do, it doesn't matter what you do, probably half of them would never refer you. Even though they're happy with you, they wouldn't even think of referring you, right? Because they're just not in that mindset. So he said, why don't you just, instead of spreading everything all out all over the place, put your resources where it matters? So what we did, we created a list of everyone who's referred us somebody in the last couple of years and created basically this VIP. We started out this year with a, a really nice gift from Zingerman's Deli. Zingerman's is a, a world-famous deli here in Ann Arbor. Incredible products, and they wrap them in, you know, the presentation of the stuff is incredible. And we had them deliver them to every single home of these 150 people. And the whole goal is if we can get one referral from each of those people each year, that's, you know, that's a lot of, that's 150 additional transactions. And like another thing now, whenever we get a referral, we send a gift from Zingerman's. Again, you know, it's a phenomenal, everyone has, oh, Zingerman's, that's really something special. They're packaged wonderfully. I do a handwritten note. They come pick up my notes and stick it with a gift. And throughout the year, we're just doing different things as far as, you know, like four times a year, we're sending out something very nice. In the springtime, it was flower bulbs. Just something to really let them know they're special and keep in front of them. It comes down to, you know, it's interesting how we always spend money on all this internet stuff, right? Like Boomtown and Tiger Leads and Zillow and, and Trulia and all these kinds of things. And when you, I look back at it, I go, where's my business coming from? The, the, the bulk of my money comes from people who already know me. That's where I want to start spending my money. It sounds like you're kind of reshifting your focus back to this, this list of people who have done business with you and sent you referrals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went way out on that. You know, this is an interesting trend. What I've sort of noticed that, you know, it used to be if you had, you know, uh, a certain lead generation site that you paid a lot of money for, you were the only one. So you got a lot of leads. But what's happened with all of those sites pretty much across the board, they've diluted them, right? Now there's instead of one license per market, there's maybe five or ten. And there's all these duplications coming in. So all of a sudden, instead of just one or two of these lead generation sites, there's maybe 30 in your marketplace, and it completely dilutes everything. So number one, the effectiveness, I think, of those has gone down. But the other part is I'm realizing that a lot of people use the Internet for information. They might use some of these great sites, but when it comes to actually buying or selling, they go with somebody that was referred to them. Like I said, 40% of our business did come from the Internet, but I still think relationships are the number one thing, and I think we have to get back to that. You mentioned that you send something special out to these top 150 four times a year. Tell us what that is. You said you send out these gifts to the deli. You also send out a flower bulb. What else are you sending? This fall, we're going to send out pumpkins. And Christmas, we're going to do something. And again, you know, it's one of those projects where we intended to be a little more organized with it this year. And of course, my business grew 40% this year. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. So what happened is because it's just, you know, it's me doing a lot of this stuff, right? We dropped the ball a little bit. In a perfect world, I would have wanted to send something like maybe midsummer, you know what I mean? And then something early fall and then something holidays. 
And quite frankly, we didn't get around to it all because I, you know, I was too busy. And that's when I realized I need to bring on the COO, you know, who can do all, she can implement everything. Because when you're the only person, you're doing the listings, you're running the business, you're implementing things, you're, you know, all these other kind of stuff. And when you grow 40%, your staff is also very busy. And of course, then I have to hire, but I'm too busy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's why I like at all these facts, I need a COO. <laughs> I need someone to run this for me. Yeah, we're going to have to do a follow-up with you in six months or a year and say how it's working out. It sounds like it's doing great after the first week. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. You know what the most exciting part is? The, the staff is suddenly realizing we've got a real professional. All of a sudden, their energy level has just gone through the roof because they're oh my gosh, you know what? All the things Martin talks about are really going to happen now. Right. And they see this this gal coming in, Agnes, and she's taken charge, and, and they're, they've already seen changes in the first week. Yeah, yeah. Now, she spent this first week, literally, we had this whole questionnaire. She's sitting down, spending probably two to three hours with every person on my team and really finding out what they do. And it's wonderful having someone who has no idea of how the real estate industry works because she comes in with no expectations, right? Sure. And she's not putting her twist on it. She's honestly just picking up everything from talking and learning. So she's spending all this time with all my staff and coming up with some really, I mean, even... It's interesting being very honest with her about things that they feel need to change and stuff like that, things that they wouldn't necessarily dare tell me. So it's been a real positive experience. Is there anything else that you're doing with your past clients, your center of influence that's generating all this business? Is it just kind of happening or are there other things that you're doing that we haven't talked about? Another thing that we're doing is, like as, as mentioned, there's three markets. As, as my move into the high-end market, I picked three neighborhoods that I decided I want to dominate. Okay, one of them is the, what I is what I call the Toll Brother subdivisions. Okay, I live in a Toll Brother home, and there are three neighborhoods. There's now soon to be two more, so I'm marking to all that entire neighborhood's five subdivisions: downtown condos, which is a high-end luxury market, and then there's one elementary school district that with the highest-priced homes in the city that I'm marketing to. And what happens every quarter? I'm sending out a brochure a four-page brochure, and it's got everything. Um, you know, it's got all the actors, the sold, the pendings, and then there's two featured homes. And I do a whole write-up about the neighborhood, a whole page, just talking about what happened and what's going on and talking about unique sales and developments and and just, just really interesting information. And I've been doing that now for a year, and it is really starting to work. Working on the listing side, but so far... I've spent $27,000 on that, and I've got $98,000 back. And my initial intent was all I care at this point is that I break even, right? I'm just looking that that was my goal. I don't care if I make money. I just want to break even because this is a long-term project. What's happening now, after a little over a year, I'm starting in the like, downtown condo in Toll Brothers. I already had a little bit of a hook in there. Angel School, I didn't but I'm starting to slowly get the phone calls. And when I meet with these people saying, Martin, those brochures are incredible. I've, I've hung on to every one that you've mailed. So that's one way that I'm really growing. And like I said, it's paying for itself. I'm getting about three and a half dollars for every dollar I spend. And I think over time, that's going to get into around 10 to 12, which is where I like to see advertising dollars go. So that's one thing I've done to really expand into a new market that I've not been in before. So is that all you're doing to break into the market is this quarterly brochure? I'm doing that, and I'm making a point of previewing the properties. 
And then also, whenever I get a listing, I'm letting everybody know. Like in my neighborhood, I've listed every single house this year. I've got a total, you know, I've really grabbed that. There's one house I didn't list, and that was because it was a realtor's house. She listed her own house. So what happens, you know, every time I list, I just list. Every time I sold, out goes a just sold card. So, you know, you're just constantly replicating. In Angel School, which is the elementary school I'm trying to, to get into, that market is going to be a little bit harder because that's not a market that I, I dominated. And there's two pretty powerful agents who do a lot of business there. But like I said, it takes one listing, out goes my sign, and then boom, I'll go the just listed cards, the just sold cards, plus my quarterly market report. You know what I'm saying? It all starts, starts rolling and it starts, uh, starts working. Do you send the just listed, just sold card to everyone in that neighborhood or just a certain number on either side of the listing? I do the whole neighborhood because those are the areas I'm trying to control. You mentioned before that you are farming 3,000, you have geographic farming going out to 3,000 homes. Is this the entire makeup of the 3,000 homes? How many homes are in these neighborhoods you just mentioned right here? Yeah, it's about 3,000. I don't know the exact number. I know that I think Angel School is, I want to say, 1,200. Downtown is about, I think, 1,200. And the Toll Brothers is about 600, something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but it's about 3,000 homes. How long have you been farming these areas? I have done that now for about, let me think now, I just sent out the fifth issue. So a year, close to a year and a half. So this is a relatively new endeavor. The, you've basically been doing geographic farming for a year. Did you do geographic farming in the past? I have in the past at different times. Mm-hmm. What I would find, whenever I noticed I started getting a number of listings in a certain neighborhood, then I would just like really ride with that. You know? And it's really interesting. I've noticed over the time, sometimes when you dominate a market completely, it starts backfiring on you because all of a sudden you get one seller who gets uh, things that you're underpricing homes and stuff, you know, and there's no competition that to show you that they're also selling them for the same price. So it's interesting how you can float in and out of neighborhoods. I've noticed that over time. And if all of a sudden you just don't have a sign out there for six months or eight months, all of a sudden another agent goes out there and their sign pops up and they're not, you know what I'm saying? It's interesting how that can change. And that's why I'm being very careful by consistently sending out these pieces every quarter. Now, if I was a brand-new agent didn't have market branding, I'd probably do it every month. But you got to realize, in that hour, pretty much everyone knows who I am. I have very good branding. I think you mentioned it before, but you said, let me just make sure I'm correct, the reason that you chose these three areas was the price point? The price point, correct. Was there any other consideration? Were you looking at turnover or anything else? Oh, I analyze them. You know, the one thing, you want to make sure there's enough business in there. I did a complete analysis where I looked at how many commission dollars were there every year. I looked at if did any agent dominate it with more than 15%. Because if there's an agent that dominates the market 15 or 20%, that makes it harder, right? So there was no one agent that really had dominance in any of those three markets. So those are the two things I analyzed. I went back about three years to see how many sales there were, how many commission dollars were available. And I looked at, you know, if it cost me this much to spend, and I can, if I get up to 15% market dominance, how many commission dollars are there? And so I analyzed it that way. There were, there were two other neighborhoods that I ruled out after I did my analysis. One, there wasn't enough turnover. The commission dollars weren't high enough for the money I would have to spend. And the other one, there was um, one agent who really, really dominated that market. And and agent number between the, I forget the exact percentage, but the two top agents had a huge share of that market. 
And they lived in that area, so I thought I'm not going to tackle that head on. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. Any other recommendations you could give to an agent who's thinking about starting a geographic farm? I think the most important, do your homework. You know, do you don't ever want to go into a neighborhood that's being dominated by a strong agent. You're, you're fighting an uphill battle. Look at a neighborhood as a high turnover. A lot of times those tend to be like subs that are 10 to 15 years old, right? Because they had young families that moved in. And if they had young kids, they're probably graduating from high school or whatever. And those, a lot of times families now are thinking of moving on. I would focus on those kind of neighborhoods where there's quick turnover uh, in the mid-price points and then just have a real strategic plan about how you're going to consistently attack that market. And, you know, I think a lot of times what people do, they don't really have a whole plan. They don't say, okay, I'm going to do this 12 times or six times. This is what's going to cost. So I just, I know I'm going to spend $20,000 or whatever it is. What they do instead is they do one mailing and it costs them, let's say, 800 bucks. They don't get anything that panic. Oh, I guess I spent $800. I'm not, you know what I mean? You've got to have a long-term plan, I think, when you're going to attack this. But then you just make sure you maximize every opportunity. Yeah, the opportunity to open a house, do an open house. Send out a card inviting everyone to the open house. Send out just let's you know, just You need to get in front of those people on a very regular basis. It all starts with, you know, with, with a listing. You have to get a listing and a sign out there and then just really, really start working it. You mentioned that your internet marketing is generating a large portion of your buyer business, about 40%. What are you doing with internet marketing? You've mentioned your SEO. Are you doing anything else? Are you doing any kind of pay-per-click or one of the companies that are buying leads? No, we're not. I don't do any pay-per-click and I don't do any, I don't buy any lead generation sites. To me, I, I, look, I consider those heroin for realtors in the sense that it makes you feel really good. Like, wow, I'm getting all these leads. I'm getting all these leads. Wow, wow, wow. But you know, keep in mind the registrations. And in my opinion, I've analyzed this, believe me, left, right, and center. I've had lead generation sites where I paid all this money. I love the back end of those sites. But keep in mind, people always say, well, Martin, you know, it only costs about $2,000 a month or whatever. But... Now, you, people forget that there's labor costs involved. It takes hundreds of hours to sift through all that stuff when you have conversion rates of 1% to 2%. The leads in my office, and we average probably 30 to 40 leads, 20 to 40 leads a week, depending on the time of year. Those are all leads where people actually fill out a form requesting information about a property of ours or called into the office or you know past clients. So they have a much, much higher conversion ratio and you don't have to sift through hundreds of leads to find one or two motivated people. And you mentioned the majority of those folks are coming in through these SEO mediums, the, the fact that you are working in certain areas, people are finding you on their Google search because you had keywords that tied into what they were looking for. And see, this is interesting. Also, the effectiveness. Like on Balma.com, we've had 192 leads this year, but... Of the 40% buyer business, I'd say 80% of the closed business comes from Balma.com. And that's the other thing. Like, you know, Realtor.com, 140 leads year-to-date. Uh, Condo Hotline, 820 leads year-to-date. Zillow, 142 leads uh, year-to-date. Truly, 122 leads year-to-date. 
However, we don't have one closed deal from Trulia and only two from Zillow. So, you know, a lot of it is where you have to follow how many clicks, how many leads, how many appointments, how many closings. And that's where I really check the effectiveness of, hey, what's going on here, right? And a lot of people don't know. Like even on some of these sites, oh, we may name those, I've doubled the money I'm spending for zip codes and all that, but the leads are dropping. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're not getting more leads. They're, they're bragging about clicks. You know, they're pointing out all these clicks. Well, I, I don't care about clicks. I, I care about how many people are clicking on one of our listings requesting information from our office. That's what I care about. And I think what's happening is there's so much of that going on out there that it's getting diluted, right? And these sites keep asking for more money and they create, think of more creative ways to spend your money. But what's happening is if there's 100 consumers and there's two lead generation sites, you're going to each get 50 clicks, right? However, or 50 consumers. Also, if there's 100 of those sites and there's still 100 consumers, they're all going to get one person. And that's sort of, I think, what's happening to this whole lead generation model. And that's why I always tell people, that you guys, the number one lead generation site is good listings. Are you going to continue to invest in Zillow, Trulia, Realtor.com? Um, and it's interesting because I, um, like I, I've collected all this data. I haven't analyzed it this year. And when I hired Agnes, I thought, I've got to analyze all this. I spent literally a whole weekend pulling all the days together. I, I go, wow, you know, I need to really revisit that. I don't know. Because if I'm spending six grand a year on Zillow or six grand on Trulia and six grand on Realtor.com, that's 18 grand. And I can't really contribute, attribute too much money to, you know, so I got to really analyze it. You know, at the end of the year, I'm going to really take a look at it. There's also, you always have to take, you know, there's also the part of your presence, right? And the big question is, how important is it that people see you on those sites, you know, next, like with the zip code that I buy and whatever. And I want to sort of analyze that and, and, and figure out how, how valuable is that? Because I look at spending $27,000 on brochures and I got $98,000 back. You know what I mean? So what happens if I double that? Well, you know what I'm saying? So those are the things that I'm analyzing right now as far as what really brings me dollars in my back pocket. I think I'll probably leave them where they're at, but I'm not going to get caught up in spending all kinds of new money and all, you know, they have all kinds of, every month, a couple months we get another call where, oh, wow, now you can spend money here. And uh, I'm not going to react to that anymore. Yeah, that's a challenge, isn't it? It sounds like if things were to continue the way they are, that if you took that 18000 and you invested them in your brochures, it'd bring you back uh, just over 50000 Yeah, because it's about three and a half to one. So, yeah. Very good. So those are the kind of decisions you, you need to make. It sounds like you, you do some type of reevaluation at the end of every year. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. Normally in October, I start pulling stuff together because I want to strategize for next year as to what we're going to do. And normally speaking, this last year, I did, I, every single month, I have all these numbers right up to date. And what happened, we were so busy this year, I didn't do it. I finally got all caught up because I, I had a habit to show to my, uh, my new COO. But normally I do it every month. I used to, every month, to really analyze what's happening. It's sort of like green light, red light, right? You know, you spend money, you spend a little bit of money and you watch and see what happens, right? Now, if I know exactly how many clicks and hits and money I make from all those different sites. So if I double the, the money I'm spending, I should see double that, right? And now with Agnes on board, I'll get back into doing that monthly. If I 
double my income, let's say on Zillow, but I don't see double the clicks, I actually double the bottom line, right? Then I'm going to really question if I need to do that. And again, it's because everything's getting diluted. You know what I mean? There's only so many consumers out there and there's more and more and more sites. And the costs just keep going up. Martin, it sounds like you've done a, a lot of experimentation in the marketing arena over the years. What has been your worst, your worst marketing method? Probably the worst marketing method was, I remember I, I used to print a newspaper, an eight-page newspaper, and it cost me tons of money. And I'd go out and I, you know, it was tons of work to get it all together and the whole nine yards. I don't really know how successful that was. You know, it was a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of time. And that's probably, I think, one of the worst things I did. I also did a spout of television advertising, cost $35,000. And it's interesting, the year that I did it, I couldn't really attribute very much business to it. But the interesting thing was, three, four years later, people would say, Martin, I see you on television all the time. And I haven't run that commercial now for probably five, six years. I still hear people say they've seen me on television. So, you know, I, at that time, I thought that was the worst investment I ever made, right? $35,000, and I couldn't really attribute too much business to it. But yet, somehow, it might have contributed more than I thought, right? Simply because people remember that on television. And who knows, when it's time to, you know, three years later, I remember that guy on TV, and plus, then they see my signs, and they see, you know what I'm saying? It, so the, those two things are probably, in my opinion, the, the, the biggest waste of money, you know, at the time that I did them. That eight-page newspaper that you did, was that going out to your farm? Was that going out to a geographic farm or going out to your uh, centers of influence? That was going to, like, geographic farms, large, large parts of, I want to say I sent out probably 10,000, 15,000 of them. It was, it was huge. And yet you're, you're doing that now but you're doing it now with, the, it sounds like a, a high-quality magazine, this brochure that you've mentioned. What do you think the difference is between the two? Well, the newspaper was a lot of fluff. You know what I mean? It would have, oh, we talk about, you know, how to fix plumbing in your house and just, you know, a little fluff stuff, right? It was, it was trying to make it sound like a neighborhood newspaper. It was a poor way to try to hide that you were really trying to market your, your listings. You'd have one page with your listings on there and one page talking about the team, but the rest of it was all fluffy articles about you know, your house and whatever. The brochure I'm sending out, it's really high class, high quality, it's high gloss, it's, it's cardboard, you know, real heavy paper, and it's all neighborhood specific. Each of those neighborhoods is, you know, I write specifically for each neighborhood. So it, it hits home. Yeah, you know, so like the fact that I have all the actives, the pendings and the solds as of the end of that each quarter with the price, the square footage and all these kind of things. And, you know, I talk about where the price started, where it went. Sometimes I'll say, you realize this house sold five years ago for this price. And, and like I said, the whole back page, I'm talking about their neighborhood, just giving them all little bits of information. Like there's a house in my subdivision. I've sold it four times. I just closed on it again about three months ago. I'll say, you know, this gives you an idea of what's going on in your neighborhood. I sold this house eight years ago for this price, and the person bought it, he put $60,000 of landscaping in, and he sold a year later for this. And then four years later, I sold it for this price. Now I just sold it last month for this price. So it gives you an idea of what, you know, here's one house sale, four times what happened, and stuff like that. And so it's just really inside information about each of those neighborhoods that I'm working and so people hang on to it. It's amazing. Every time I go on a listing appointment, like in downtown area or 
and the twelve other subs, the sellers all tell me they've kept every single one of them. So it sounds to me like the difference is between specific and general. You had this newspaper that was very general in nature. It wasn't really talking to anyone in, in particular. But these brochures are very specific about these areas, and they're talking directly to the folks in that area about things that they'll be interested in as far as real estate is concerned. And that sounds like that's the difference between the two and why one is pulling really well and the other did not. Right. I'd like to shift now and talk about your team. And what I'm looking for, we've talked now about your new COO. I'd like to go down, if you don't mind, if you'd list out all the positions on the team and what each of those positions are doing so we can get a big picture view of what's going on in your team. I have a listing manager, and her job is whenever a listing call comes in, she takes the call, she gathers all the information, she puts the listing package together with all the data, like the, the assessor's card information, the aerial view of the property. If it was listed previously, she filled out the CMA sheet for me with all the data for that property. All that kind of information, she'll stick it on my desk. She's also the one who, um, you know, if I'm out of the office, she is the one who responds to my clients. She enters things onto the different websites as far as the listings enters into MLS, all that type of stuff. Anything to do with the listing, that's what she does. I've got a closing manager, and she's been with me 20 years. And once something goes under contract, the deal goes over to her, and I'm out of the picture. And she's so good that when it's out of the picture, I don't even think about it. I don't have to worry about it. She's the one who manages it from contract to close. And she negotiates the building inspection. She does that for both the listing side and for the buyer side. I've got a listing specialist, and she lists all the condominiums on the team, allowing me to focus on the residential. She's also starting to get into the lower-priced residentials. My hope is that eventually she'll be able to, you know, basically list every single price point. And then I've got, we're in a little bit of transition right now because I had two buyer's agents that have been with me 10 years, both of them phenomenal, both doing 45 to 50 units a year. One of them just this week has moved to Chicago. And so we are in a major shift. What we had done is tried the showing assistant model where we had Scott and Heidi, who were both very successful buyer's agents, and they each had a showing assistant. And I think the model can work very well. We just put the wrong people in those positions. So where we're at right now, we've got Scott as a buyer's agent. We're going to find a showing assistant for him. We have another buyer's agent who's been with us for three months who does $300,000 and under. And just today, I think we hired somebody who will come in and do the high-end market as our third buyer's agent. So that's just starting to fall into place there. We have a lead coordinator, and every single Internet lead is responded to immediately by her. And then if they can't make an appointment immediately, if she can't contact them, she puts them into the real pro system, and she's the one who nurtures those. She goes in every single day and sees who's active, and you know she'll call and communicate with them. And the minute they're ready to do something, she turns them over to the buyer's agent. I've got a marketing person, and that's Stephanie, the one that puts 20. She's in about 20 hours a week. She does all my, you know, everything on the internet for me. What we were talking about earlier. I've got a receptionist, and that position now we're bringing in. We just hired another phenomenally talented person. To the listing department, we really need two people over there. So she's going to be, quote unquote, the receptionist 25% of the time, 75% of the time helping out in the listing department. And then we have a courier, 
who works three days a week part-time, and he delivers things for us all over the place. And then there's me, and I lift. And up until a week ago, I was doing everything else, and now we've got Agnes, who is stepping in as our COO. Well, you've got a couple interesting things going on here that I'd like to uh, dig a little deeper into. First of all, you said that you have a listing specialist, and it uh, sounds like you brought that person in to take in some of the your traditional or lower-end business while you're moving into the upper end. Correct. How did you find this person, and what specifically do they do or not do on the listing side? Everybody I'm finding lately are people that a team member referred to me or, oh, they come to me. Linda was a friend of Heidi's. Heidi's my top buyer's agent who was with me for 10 years. We were out last summer, I think, sitting at an outdoor cafe downtown Ann Arbor. Linda was there. And Heidi says, you know, Linda, you should get into real estate. And we started talking about it. So I said, well, you know, come on and we'll interview you. And we hired her. You know, she came from the retail business, the jewelry retail business. She's a very good salesperson. So she does all the condominiums. She basically does what I do, only for condominiums in the lower end uh, residential. And as her knowledge base increases and her confidence increases, we'll slowly move her up in price. How did you train her? She basically follows me. You know, I have my own private room, and she's got a little room beside me with a sliding glass window. And I just leave that open. And for the first month or so, she basically would follow me around and listen to me on the phone. She hears me all day long on the phone. At the beginning, she went on appointments with me, and then I'd follow her on appointments. But mostly, she would learn by just observing, and then as I was doing things, I'd be telling her why I'm doing things and you know things like that. And now she's just growing because she hears me all day long on the phone. How do you compensate a listing specialist? She gets paid 25% on every listing that she takes that closes. The buyer agents, you, you've had these people a long time, 10 years. How do you keep a buyer agent for 10 years? I don't know. <laughs> I, I was, because, you know, to find a successful buyer agent, you need a DI, you know, the DI personality. You know, they got to be the director and they got to also that high. And it's hard to keep, you know, a person that's a DI, they a lot of times want to be the leader. I don't know. You know, number one, we have, we, we do have a great, great group. They've got a consistent lead flow. Becky, our closing manager, is wonderful. So the job is very easy. They don't have to prospect. The leads come to them. They just show property. When it goes under contract, it's out of their hands. So it's a great situation. They all make very good money. You know, they're all in six figures. And so, like Heidi said, you know, she would get recruited all the time. She says, why would I want to leave? You know, I'm making more money than most realtors. I have zero expenses. I have no risk. I don't have to prospect, and I don't have to close the deal. You know, I mean, I don't have to follow the transaction because a good salesperson hates those details, right? And there's nothing worse than a sales, really good salesperson who has to sit there and fumble through, you know, following up with all this stuff on the way to closing. And, so, and, we, and we, just, we really do have a good group. Uh, we've got a phenomenal reputation. We're like a little family. How do you compensate your buyer agents? They get paid 40%. And if it's an in-house transaction, they get paid 50%. When you say in-house, does that mean the buyer is purchasing one of your listings? One of my listings, correct. Yeah. Does the compensation vary if they're helping their friends or family or their sphere of influence? No. You know, the expectation is that they bring business to the table. 
the expectation is that, you know, no, you, it's part of your expectation is that you also bring business to the table. Now, if they bring a listing referral, I will pay them 25% referral. So they would not do the listing. They'd hand it off to you, but they would receive a 25% referral, just like if they had sent it to an agent across town or across the country. Correct. Absolutely. And the other thing I do, if they're working with a buyer that has a house to sell, I used to have the philosophy like, well, that I don't owe them anything for the listing because that was our you know, company dollar generated the lead. However, I was finding also maybe buying a house and then, well, who are they listing with? They'd list with someone else. So I now have kicked in, I think I can pay them $500 for every buyer lead that they get that has a house to sell if we get that. So all of a sudden they're a little more motivated to, to, to look into that also. You also mentioned that you're experimenting with the showing agent or showing specialist model. Yeah. How long have you been doing that and what have you learned? Well, we learned, number one, you have to have the right people in place. You know, what, what happened, we started out with two people. The one person, and if I look at it in hindsight, was uh, just a newly married woman, wonderful person. However, she had a husband that did very well. She's very close to her family in Oklahoma, and she kept going to Oklahoma. And when you're assisting a buyer's agent in the middle of summer, you can't leave for 10 days. You know what I mean? She had an aunt die, and she disappeared for two weeks. And so her heart wasn't into it. You know, she wasn't pushing Scott. She would just sort of sit there and wait for him to do things. And she just not the right personality. The other person, uh, but for a bunch of different reasons, didn't work out. So we brought a third one in, and her this personality, which was a DI, we realized very quickly she didn't want to be a showing assistant. She sort of did that to get onto the team and really wanted to be a buyer's agent when she saw the money that Heidi made, right? I posted on different Facebook groups, hey, you guys, I'm really trying this showing assistant model. It is not working for me. And it, it all, they all say, Martin, you just have to have the right person. You have to have a follower, not somebody who wants to be a leader, and somebody who's happy making fifty dollars to $80,000 a year. You know, they're not, probably not going to make six-digit income. So it's definitely, I know that certain people have done it very successfully, Still gonna, Scott's still very open to trying it because, you know, Heidi, for instance, when she had her one showing assistant before he got sick, she had 18 buyer appointments one month. She said, Martin, I can see how it really works if you get the right person in there because while I'm out doing this, he's setting up, he's showing properties, I'm setting up appointments and, you know, they could work very efficiently together. So I can see how the model works, but you've got to have the right people in place. And you're just getting this started how are you trying to structure the compensation for the showing specialist? The showing specialist gets paid 15%. The buyer's agent gets 35 and the company gets 50 The buyer's agent gets 5% less, but he's able to really expand. He, they're learning delegation, right? So he's able to do a lot more business and have a little bit more of a life and make more money. in the high, Because keep in mind... A buyer's agent probably three-quarters of the time is showing property out on the road. And a showing assistant, you know, especially when you have those buyers that, you know, they, they're, you know, been working with them for nine months and they keep wanting to see whatever, you know what I mean? It's, you don't really need the buyer's agent with that person. You can, you can have a strength. Hey, this my, my, my partner will go out and we'll show you those properties. If it's a house you want to buy, I can step in again. There's some people who the buyer's agents don't do any showings. I, I would have a harder time with that, but... I think a showing assistant can really supplement a busy buyer's agent and allow them to be much more uh, productive. You also mentioned the lead coordinator. 
that's a, a little bit unique. It sounds like you were getting overloaded with internet leads. The buyer agents were, were probably getting distracted by that, and you brought in the lead coordinator. Right. Is the lead coordinator a full-time or part-time position? She's in the office four hours a day when she does all the follow-up stuff. Whenever a lead comes in, it goes to her email, and she responds immediately for it, like basically all day and all night, right? So she works part-time in the office, but she responds to every lead immediately. The problem we're running into, and this is why I, I hate these lead generation systems, because you drown in leads, right? And you're spending all this time following up when you should be just following up to be ready to buy. When I sat down time, he's got 30, 40 buyers. He drives his, Scott, you can't work with 30, 40 buyers. You can work with 10 to 15. That's your top 10 or top 15. The rest, you just put on flash programs, which he has them on flash programs. And then you just, you need to block, time block, maybe an hour or two once a week to call the other people who aren't quite ready to do anything. And so what happened is they're drowning in new leads coming in. That's why I thought I'm going to have Carolyn step in and monitor all that stuff, the people who aren't quite ready to do anything, so that the buyer's agents don't have to do that. And so she's following up with the agent. You know, you can tell by the kind of activity, you know, going on, how active people are, and she'll touch base with them if they're ready to move forward, and she hands them over to the buyer's agents. How long have you had the lead coordinator? That's also a new position. We've had her for about a month. And it seems to be working really, really well. The buyer's agents will love it because they're not being inundated. It's allowing them to focus on what they do best. You know what I mean? Working with active buyers and sellers as opposed to getting diverted by responding to hundreds of leads. What was the background of the person who took over the lead coordinator position? She was actually a friend of my listing coordinator. She, she had owned a small business at one point. Yeah, I think she was a housewife for, you know, basically stayed home with the kids for a while. And then she, she operated a small business, but she's very outgoing. She's from Ann Arbor. She knows everybody. Very comfortable calling people, you know, very personable. What's her DISC personality profile? She's an IS. The bad part about that is she talks too much. So I've had a really work with her. says, sweetie, you don't need to go on half an hour conversation about, you know, your grandfather. Because her family's pretty prominent in Auburn, she knows everybody. So she'll get on these tangents. Oh, I just spoke to Mr. Smith. We talked to all my grandsons. See, this is, you, don't, you don't need to do that. So that, that is the weakness. She, she's an IS, and we're really working with her to say, you know what, just stay focused on the mission. How are you compensating the lead coordinator? I'm paying her $12 an hour when she's in the office, and then we pay her $150 for every appointment, and an additional $150 when it closes. So $300 per closed deal 154 a um, an appointment it's only been a month has she brought in any additional business or converted any additional business so far you know we're just trying to analyze it well the one thing i've really noticed is the buyer agents aren't getting inundated with leads that aren't going anywhere right so it's allowing them to stay focused on what they do so they're happier where she's on the leads like unbelievable so I would say so far, everything is saying that it's working very well. I know Scott's had two leads turned over to him from her that, that she vetted for a week or two. So, I mean, it's too early to really tell yet, but by all intents and purposes, it looks like it's working. Like everything, you know, and you have to, everything you do, you, you let it run for a couple of months and just really monitor what's happening. And I think that's something a lot of people don't do. You know, they're just like, Carolyn, you're costing me this month, much to, uh, to, to hire and to run this. 
what's the output? You know, and if there's no money there, then we have to get rid of it. How do you create accountability among your staff, among your team? Probably the most important thing, every sales meeting, we go over all of our numbers. You know, we have a great big flat screen in our conference room. We just pull up this huge Excel spreadsheet and start right at step one. See how many buyer leads this week. Scott, how many new buyer appointments? How many buyer agency contracts? How many contracts? And then go, you know, tomorrow, how many appointments did you make? How many agency contracts did you sign? We go right down the list, every department. So everyone has to bring, talk about their numbers in front of everybody else. I track religiously. I track the number of appointments they go on. We have, you know, they have buyer lead tracking forms. Every time they have an appointment, you have to write it in there so that at the end of the month, I say, hey, you had 12 appointments this month. What happened to this? What happened to this? What happened to this? We're, we're very, very religious about tracking those type of things. We have Excel spreadsheets. We keep it all in box.com so everyone can access it and input their data. Well, Martin, there are going to be people that have been listening to us so far. They're listening to how you're doing marketing. They're listening to your, your staff and your team. And they're going to have a question. They're going to be wondering, are you profitable? Yes, very much so. My profit, actually, year-to-date right now is 43%. That's your net profit, 43%. Do you pay yourself a salary? I pay myself a salary every month, but when I'm talking profit, that's my salary plus whatever's left over. Martin, that's a fantastic net profit margin, 43%. Has it always been 43%? No, no. I generally will run between 35 and 40 because I've had a huge growth this year, we're up like 38.5%. My profit also, of course, my expenses didn't go up that much, so my profit jumped up to 43% this year. Sounds like you track a lot. You're doing a lot of tracking of everybody's numbers in the office. Are you tracking your expenses really tight? Is that another reason why you're able to maintain this 35 to 40% net profit? Yeah. Like we were talking earlier how I monitored, like, this is what I spent on Zillow, right? This is what am I making on the output? I track, I track it religiously. How often do you review your financials? Probably almost daily. You know, it's, and to me, finances are two things. One is the input, the other is the output, right? The input, I look at probably two, three times a day. I, I have a form, and it's called written, closed, tracking form. So in the minute a house and property goes under contract, that keeps my closing manager going into this form. It's the right to street address, the sales price, any cost of goods, uh, you know, like if there was a referral that had to be paid out, if it was a buyer sale, what we paid the buyer's agent, whatever, then there's what we call the net profit, right? What What is company dollar? And so she'll write that in, and then for closing it in, she'll go for closed, and she'll add it there too. So at any point, I have 24 tabs, you know, one for each month written and closed. So for instance, I can go into, hey, where are we at a number? Now, that top right number will tell me exactly what is company net dollar. And I know what it costs me to run my business per month, and I watch that like a hawk. And it generally costs me about 50 grand a month to run my business. So I know I have to have at least 50 grand there to cover my, to keep the doors open. And so if we're getting, let's say right now already, in a year, we have $38,000 closed, which is, I'm not too worried because we still have three weeks and the first week is it's always very, very slow. And plus, I'm negotiating a bunch of deals. But I'm keeping a real tight eye on that. And guess what? On the meeting on Tuesday, okay, you guys, we're at 38 GCI. We'll probably be at about 50 or 60 GCI net company dollar by this, by Tuesday. 
but I'm going to start already saying, hey, what's going on? You know, who has a buyer? What, what's going on with the listing? Let's really get tight on this. I don't, you know, so to make sure we hit our numbers. So that those are the, that's the most important thing. I, I watch that daily. Becky knows that the minute we get something under contract, she better put that in there within minutes because <laughs> I look at that every day. And that's what drives my business. I think that's really interesting. Two parts. One, you're tracking your gross margin. You're tracking your gross margin each month to make sure that you're going to be able to cover your net. You're watching that on a, a daily uh, basis. And the second part is that it sounds to me like you said you're sharing that information with the team. I assume then they must know that you need to hit that 50K to, to break even and that you're only at 38 and they're now part of that process of working to get above the 50. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So it's it's uh, almost a little bit of open book management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Martin, what drives you? And I get asked that question all the time, and you know, it's funny. I um, it's I just want to be the best at what I do, and you know, I hate to admit it, but part of me wants to be number one. You know, it's so funny because I've been sort of stuck at you know I was stuck at one point five million for a whole a number of years here. And nothing would change. And I was always number one in my region for Keller Williams, right? Well, last year, all of a sudden, I got a phone call from a seller. He says, Martin, there's a guy on the radio who's saying he's the number one Keller Williams agent in the region. He says, I called him up and told him that's not true. I said, who was it? So I looked up, and lo and behold, this agent out of Plymouth had beat me. And that, I cannot tell you how that motivated me. I That's where I just flipped everything around and made the decision, I've got to do this, I've got to hire, you know what I mean? So that motivated me, having someone beat me uh, to where I can't ever have someone beat me. I mean, it's interesting. And the other thing that really motivates me is I just really want to have something I'm proud of. I want to, want, you know, I want to create this incredible work environment where we provide the best possible service, and I want to create a nice life for my family. Martin, why have you been so successful? Um, I think, number one, I, I, I work on purpose. Okay, I always work on purpose. I don't work rudderless. I know where I'm going. But probably one of the most important things is I've always done a whole bunch of things very consistently every day. And a lot of people are always looking for a magic pill. You know, they think, God, if I just want to do this and spend all my time doing this one thing, then I'll be successful or whatever. But like, like I said, I make 10 to 15 phone calls every day. I do probably 5 to 10 handwritten notes every single day. I, you know, I preview certain properties every single day. I mean, I just do a whole bunch of things very consistently. My marketing is very consistent, has been over the years. I always analyze what works. If something doesn't work, I change course. But I give something long enough, you know, I don't try it for one or two months and say it doesn't work. I usually give everything at least a year. And I think the other part is I have phenomenal market knowledge. I've, I've made it my job to know the market better than anybody. And I think that's probably one of the most powerful things you can bring to the table because we develop our confidence from our knowledge. If you don't have confidence, your clients are going to pick that up, especially on the listing side, and you're going to lose out on the listing business. So I, I'm a true professional that way that I study my market every single day. And every price point, like we, we in our office track every $50,000 price point in my market. So when I sit down with a client, I can say, you know, at your price point in your school district, this is how many houses sold last year. And I go back 10 years so we can watch trends. We can watch, you know, so you have that kind of powerful information behind you that makes you incredibly confident and people like working with confident people. They trust you. 
you know, when, when you have confidence. Martin, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? In this day and age, this is what I tell them to do. I say, you know what, if you were going to open up any business, you'd probably have to get a $100,000 line of credit. You know, you'd have to get a, a building and you'd have to get inventory, all those type of things. I would probably tell someone who's seriously wanting to get in the real estate business, either have fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars $75,000 of your own or get a line of credit and create an entire marketing plan and do it right, right from the beginning. I'd start day one with an assistant and have do everything on purpose and, and, and lay out the line. You know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit on the phone from this time to this time. I'm going to do this. I'm going to preview property so that I become incredibly knowledgeable in the market very quickly. I'd probably preview market or uh, inventory for half the day, every day, so that I can immediately talk intelligently about the market. But I, I would lay out an entire plan and have the money set aside to make it happen. So many of us start poor. You know what I mean? We go in with no money and we can't do anything because we don't have any money. Then we get one closing. We'll spend a little bit of money on something, but there's no strategy. There's no plan behind it. It's just real scattered. I would get every kind of training I possibly could. I would surround myself with people that are where I want to go. One of the things I did a lot when I was growing is I would go shadow people. You know, I flew up to Ottawa, Canada and shadowed Bill Renault for three days and I just shadowed a bunch of successful people. I went to, I always went to every single mastermind. I went to family reunion. I go to mega camps, you know, just every sort of training I could possibly pick up. Do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with mastermind agent are valuable? Oh, completely, completely. When I, you know, I remember Howard Britton, because I was a Howard Britton star. Before I was a star, I would listen to those tapes over and over and over and over again. It's the same as shadowing almost, right? You get get to hear from people who are where you want to go. And a lot of things don't become believable until you hear someone say they've done it, right? Say, oh, well, no, that guy on the thing, he just did it. And then, you know what, I also, what I would do a lot too, back in the day when I would listen to different people on tapes, I would call them. I would call people and say, you know, you, you said this, on the, I listened to you on an interview or whatever, and I have some questions about, you know, and it's amazing how many of those people are willing to share. And that is the interesting thing. A lot of the very successful people are more than happy to share. Well, Martin, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the people listening? Just that, you know what, I think the real estate business is probably one of the most phenomenal opportunities to make money and have a very successful business. Like where else can you get into a business that probably costs you maybe $1,000 to get started? You get to sell other people's inventory so you don't have to spend millions of dollars on inventory. And especially this day and age, like back when I was building my team, there were no models. You know, there were no books to go to. There was was nothing. I had to learn by hook or by crook. In this market, there are all kinds of models to follow and all kinds of people to teach you. I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal. Where else can you go? And it doesn't matter what your background is. If you put your heart in this and you work hard, the possibilities of making 500000 600 700 million, they're there. <laughs> you know, it's, there's no other opportunity like it in the world. But I think real estate, the one thing is people are driven to by the perception of the opportunity but they're driven away from when they realize how hard it is. And that is the thing you've got to commit to putting in the time. Well, Martin, you said it. 
There's no opportunity in the world like real estate. If you're willing to put in the time and work hard, you inspired us with your amazing turnaround after such a slow start. You demonstrated the power of market knowledge to increase our confidence and be a better agent. You showed us the power of tracking to run a more profitable practice and create accountability in the team. You proved that turning your top 150 referral sources into raving fans is a winning strategy. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 124 homes last year and knows how to generate internet leads. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.